Well, our sermon this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 8. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. I invite you to open your Bibles uh, to that uh, passage of Scripture. If you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 981. That's 981. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we certainly would this love for you to take that Bible in front of you. That's our gift to you today that you might have a copy of the Word of God. We believe it to be a, a, an unfathomable the Word of God. Indeed. And so that is our gift to you today. And so hopefully you by now you found your way to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll begin reading in verse 8 this morning. Please hear now the Word of God. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity now to come and to hear from you and to set our hearts upon your word for us as our brother Paul lays out for us, I believe, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. We ask that you would come and work in our hearts, that you would exalt yourself as the one true God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that you would draw us to you through your word and through the spirit, that we might find you to be our great delight and our great treasure. As the psalmist declared, we want to pant after you as a deer pants for water this morning. We want to long for you. We want our souls to be thirsty for you. So please come and help us. Help us to desire that which is of utmost, the utmost treasure, the utmost price, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 20th century, Japan had invaded and controlled the nation of Korea. In order to enforce their control upon the Korean people, in the 1930s, they set up shrines to their pagan gods throughout the nation of Korea. Shrines in the cities and villages and the government offices and every school. In fact, there were shrines in the 1930s in Korea in every Christian church. And you would go to worship on Sunday morning, but as you entered the church building, there you would encounter this uh, pagan god as a shrine in which there would be Japanese police officers in every church on every Sunday making sure that you would bow in worship to the shrine before you can join the congregation to worship Jesus. Failure to bow to the shrine would mean you'd be hauled before the police and you would be publicly beaten and tortured. And to make matters worse, your family's food ration would, be, would end, leaving your family to starve. There was a woman in Korea in the 1930s, a young woman named Esther Ahn Kim. She's a follower of Jesus. She taught in the local school system. On one day, her entire school was forced to march up a mountain to worship before a shrine. As she was marching, she said, God brought to my memory Daniel chapter 3, 
when Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were, were demanded along with all the people to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol. And if they did not, they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. The Scripture says, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, it be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's in light of this verse that Esther and Kim, as she marched up the mountain, said to herself, even if God didn't save them from the burning fire, they would die honoring Him. I was going to make the same decision. With God's help, I would never bow to the Japanese idol. And so she prayed, Today on the mountain, before the large crowd, I will proclaim that there is no other God beside you. She describes the scene in this way. She said, when we finally reached the shrine, a great crowd already had gathered. Probably a dozen schools were represented. Their pupils standing in straight, respectful lines, not daring to whisper or to move their positions. Because I had become so reluctant to come, our school was last to arrive. Everyone was looking at us, especially the disapproving police. She went on to describe the condition of her heart at that moment as she said, I was like a child at the shrine, afraid to make a noise because of the police officers. A sense of uneasiness swept over me. I I tried to pray, but my prayers were too weak. I stammered out of my own lack of courage and strength. Oh Lord, I prayed, I am so weak. But I am your sheep, so I must obey and follow you. Lord, watch over me. And in something like a scene perhaps from millennia ago as Nebuchadnezzar paraded the nation along with all the foreign captives before his monstrous golden idol waiting for that musical signal to sound that all might bow in worship to it. These Koreans were gathered before an idol themselves. Kim explains the moment of their worship by saying a strident order shrilled over the murmuring crowd, Attention! The people straightened line by line. We were accustomed to being subservient, for we had been captives of the Japanese for more than 37 years. Our profoundest bow to Amaturi Omikami, the sun goddess. And as one person, that enormous crowd followed the shouted order by bending the upper half of their bodies solemnly and deeply. Of all the people at the shrine, I was the only one who remained erect, looking straight at the sky. Esther Ong Kim was greeted by four police officers in her classroom as she was drug off into custody. So why not bow? Why, why not just go ahead and bow with everyone else? You know in your heart that you only love Jesus. Why Why stand as a relatively weak woman in face of an oppressive, conquering nation, stand against them, inviting great difficulties and pain upon yourself? I mean, what does she lose if she bows? Certainly, I think we would say it's sin. We would all agree with it. But you and I sin all the time, don't we? And after all, Christ has died to pay for our sins. Certainly, we wouldn't say she would lose her salvation. Certainly we wouldn't say she would disprove her faith. In fact, she wouldn't even lose the respect of everyone. Because everyone bowed. She would just be joining the crowd. What does she gain, perhaps? Maybe that's the better question. What does she gain by standing up, by, by not bowing? 
I think about what you and I live for to gain. We like our houses and our cars and our weekends and our comfort. And we, we like our friendships and our family. And we like our health. And she doesn't gain any of that that you and I give ourselves to. She didn't get any of that by, by standing up. And so why not? What does she gain? I would suggest to you this morning that she gains Christ. Not that she didn't have Him before, or not that she's in some way earning Jesus. But by standing with Jesus, she gains a deeper, richer, unfathomable relationship with Christ. For Jesus, for Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, He is of surpassing worth. I count it all loss, he said, that I may gain Christ. I want Christ, he says. In fact, you notice in verse 10, he says that I may know Christ, that I may know Him. Which is, if you think about who's writing the book of Philippians, it's somewhat of a ridiculous statement. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. He's been Christian for 30 years up to this point. And he says, you know what, guys? You know what I want? I want to know Christ. I wonder when the Philippians were reading this and think, what are you thinking, Paul? I mean, everything we know about Jesus is from you. I mean, we've heard that Jesus appears to you periodically. And you've gone to heaven and come back. What do you mean? You want to know Christ. Well, evidently, Paul had not had enough of Jesus. He wanted more of Jesus. He wanted this ever-widening, ever-deepening knowledge of Jesus. I want to know you, Jesus, Paul says. I want to know everything about you. I want to know what you taught. I want to know your parables. I want to know the story of your life. I want to know your interaction with the Pharisees as we see your justice and your interaction with sinners as we see your compassion. I want to know about your miracles. And I want to know why at times you were filled with joy and other times you wept over Jerusalem. I want to know your gentleness and humility and righteousness. I want to know you, Jesus. But, I, but it's not, he just is not referring, I want to pass some type of theology exam. He says, I want to know you. I want to experience Christ in this life. Certainly you and I as Christians will spend eternity experiencing Jesus. That will be largely what eternity means, growing in our relationship with Christ. And I think in that time, we will discover that we have this infinitely accelerating desire for Jesus. The more we know, the more we want about Jesus. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is some type of spiritual retirement account that we come into when we reach a certain age, that we actually get once we um, reach a point in our life. Paul says, no, I'm not waiting till I die to experience Jesus. I want to know Him now. I want to follow Him. I want to fellowship with Him. I want to hear Him. I want Him. I think this is extraordinary in light of the passages that we see previous to this verse 10 where Paul has discovered that his righteousness and his morality and all of his religion is is meaningless compared to the righteousness in which Christ will give him. Christ will give him righteousness and he will be eternally secure for God forever because not of his work but because the righteousness in which God freely gives him through faith in the work of Jesus and yet amazingly receiving the righteousness of Christ and therefore being eternally secure and having everything taken care of does not make him passive, but just simply whets his appetite for more. He longs for more. I don't know, as we've spent some time in Philippians 3, I don't know if you realize that Jesus is everywhere. 
In verse 1, he says, I want to rejoice in Christ. And in verse 3, he says, I'm going to boast in Christ. And in verse 7, he says, I consider everything a loss for the sake of Christ. And then in verse 8, he talks about the surpassing worth of Christ and says, I want to gain Christ. And in verse 9, I want to be found in Christ. And I'm going to trust in Christ. And now he's saying, I want to know Christ. And it's going to go on even into the verses to come. He wants Christ. He, he wants everything about Jesus. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to grow deep with Jesus. This is... This is my hope for Hamilton Baptist Church. This is my hope for our faith community here that we would, I don't pray that we would become big. And I don't hope that we become slick or prominent or fancy or influential or any of those things. I pray that we would be a community of people who are after one thing, namely Jesus, that we want him that we long for Him, that we have a zeal for Him. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle said, a great theologian who has massively impacted my life. He said, a zealous man is preeminently a man for one thing. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Therefore, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. And if he is consumed in the burning... He cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp he is made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God has appointed him. What if, what if Hamilton Baptist Church was full of a people that were zealous for one thing? Christ. Jesus. Not ourselves. Not our wealth. Not our health. But, but Jesus. We want to please Him and follow Him and spread His fame. That, what if God would lodge this deep in our heart? What if He would do what my brother Jeff has testified He's doing all over uh, this, this nation, reviving hearts for Him, that there would be a zeal that burns in us and compels us and overshadows everything we do, that it would overshadow our marriage and how we interact with our family, what we do with our money and friends and possessions and dreams, that it would impact us deeply. This is what Paul's living for. I think this is at the core of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I think this is what it means to be a Christian. These passages throughout Philippians chapter 3, I pray that God would lodge them in our hearts this morning as we consider what does it mean to know Christ. Paul is going to tell us, I think, in verses 10 and 11, four ways in which we can know Christ. We're going to look at each one in turn. And my prayer, or perhaps you would even pray right now, Lord, give me this zeal for Jesus. Maybe you would ask Him this very moment, I need to want Jesus, help me to see Christ as valuable. Help me to see Him as real and relevant to my life and precious. Paul begins by saying that we can know Christ through the power of His resurrection. Verse 10. That I may know Him and the, and the power of His resurrection, he announces. So knowing Christ evidently is in some way experiencing power. But not just any power, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that we as Christians believe some 2,000 years ago, in the darkness of an early Sunday morning, Christ's cold body lay on a stone slab in a tomb somewhere outside of Jerusalem. 
One commentator says his heart was stilled in the icy grip of the grave. Whatever blood remained was congealed in his veins. His eyes were fixed and dilated. His body was bound tightly with spices and grave clothes. But then, before dawn, his vacant eyes blinked open and coursed with light. And with the ease of omnipotence, his body left the wrappings like an empty cocoon. If you want to know what God is like, look to the cross. If you want to know His character, His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, or His mercy and grace, forgiveness and compassion, you look to the cross. But if you want to know the power of God, you look to the resurrection of Jesus. It's there that God exercised His great power, defeating our greatest enemy. Paul will write to the Ephesians that it is an incomparably great power. And this is the power that Paul wants to know. In fact, it is a power that is available to us. He prays for the Ephesian church saying that you may know the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that is available to you. I want to experience that power, Paul says, in knowing Christ. We need that. We we need that power to help us to become holy and to help us to cherish Christ. We need power to trust God in trials and to hope in God when life hurts. We need power sometimes to get out of bed in the morning. We need power in our commute on Monday morning, don't we? We need power sometimes when we come home and open the door. We need power when we turn on the computer or answer the phone. We need power to defeat our idols and triumph in temptation. We need power to repay evil with good and lay down our rights and forgive sin and love sinners. We need power to close our mouths at times and other times to open them. We need power to stand up straight when everyone else bows down. If you're going to become like Christ, you're going to need help. Do not think, Christian, that you became like Christ on your own. Do not think that you have followed Christ likewise, therefore, on your own. God has caused you by His great power to be born again, as Jesus says. Your spirit, which once was dead as Jesus, is alive because God is powerfully working in your life. And yet He does not stop. We need power to continue to follow Christ. We need the power of the resurrection. Do you long for that? How many times are you trying to fight temptation in your own strength? How many times are you trying to work through sin in your own strength? God's power is available to you. I pray, He says, that you will know the incomparable greatness of His power available to you. Paul says, I want to know Him and I want to know His power. But he doesn't simply want to know His power. He goes on and says, I I want to know Christ through the fellowship in His sufferings. You see that in verse 10? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings. Now, admittedly, this is where it gets a little weird. Because I can understand, you know, verse 9, I want the righteousness of God. Anyone here want God's righteousness? I mean, that seems like a no-brainer to me. And I want to know God. Okay, yeah, I'm good with that. And I want the power of the resurrection. That sounds pretty good. I'll take that. And I want to share His sufferings. Well, I think I'll pass on that one, right? No thank you. That just sounds a little weird, doesn't it? That's strange. I mean, it's pretty un-American. 
You and I live in a culture that does everything it can to minimize suffering, to maximize comfort. And we, if you think about your life, you spend a lot of your life, your time and your energy and your resources trying to avoid suffering. And we bring this in the church. So oftentimes Christianity is kind of packaged as this is a way to maximize your comfort here by Jesus and you're just going to coast on into heaven for nice and easy like. And that's how often we talk about the gospel. And, and please don't misunderstand me. It is good to minimize suffering. It is appropriate to, to minimize suffering. When Christ walked upon this earth, He minimized suffering. When I get to heaven, it will be many things, and, and the, not the least of which, it will be comfortable, right? And a thousand times more, but at least we could say that's nothing wrong with that. So why then is Paul seeking suffering? Well, I, don't, I don't think he's seeking suffering. I think he's seeking Christ. And do you know where you can find Christ? In your sufferings. I want to find him in my sufferings. Theologians have identified four biblical reasons for suffering. They have described the purifying purpose of suffering. That is, suffering refines our faith. It helps create hope in God and not this world. When God begins to take things from you, you begin to be, be released from, from making them your idols. And you begin to realize, okay, I don't need those things. I want God. He's purifying you. Oh, there's a kingdom purpose to suffering as well. When we suffer, especially for the sake of the gospel, we give credibility to the gospel. We give visibility to it. And then there's a, a third reason. There's an um, a eternal purpose. A number of times in Scripture, even Jesus would say that our afflictions in this world, when they're rightly endured, are actually um, laying up for us this eternal treasure in heaven. And so there's this eternal purpose to suffering. And then fourthly, there's an intimacy purpose. That is, our relationship with Christ becomes real and powerful and close and strong in the midst of suffering. It is this intimacy purpose that I think Paul is referring to here when he says, I want to share in his sufferings. In fact, many translations don't put it the way uh, my translation does, the ESV. Maybe you have a different translation. And, and you're, the NIV, the NAS, the King James Version all say that they want to fellowship in his sufferings or fellowship and sharing his sufferings. It's the, that word share is really the word fellowship. I want to fellowship with Christ in suffering. Paul's saying, I don't want to, no, I want to suffer, but I want to fellowship with Christ in suffering because I am going to suffer. And by the way, so are you. I don't know if this is evident to you yet, but in this world, you will have trouble. You will suffer. It is inevitable. Acts 14 declares, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 4 says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Right? It's not strange, he says. The trial's not strange. It's expected. Romans 8, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified in Him. 2 Timothy 3, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering, I'm telling you, based upon God's Word, is part of God's plan. And I would also tell you, the more you and I follow Christ, the more we resemble God in our life, the more we will suffer. The more hardship we will endure. It is inevitable. But we do not suffer alone. Christ will stand with us. We have fellowship in that suffering. There is companionship in suffering. Paul knew this. He was preaching in Corinth. And Paul, the great apostle Paul, was afraid 
said, God, I'm afraid. Well, after all, he's been stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned, and we can kind of understand why he's afraid. And he said, God, I'm afraid. And you know what? This Bible says, the Lord appeared to him. Acts 18, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. He experienced the presence of God in his final trial. Paul says, everyone deserted me. In the final trial before Paul was executed, he says, all abandoned me except one person. 2 Timothy chapter 4, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He knew what it was like to have this immediate sense of Christ in, in the midst of his suffering. And not just Paul, Stephen, when he preached his sermon and he's being dragged out to be stoned to death, the Bible says he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they are thrown in the fiery furnace, there were not three there, but there were four. Christ came to them in the midst of their suffering and they would not have encountered Him if it were not for the fiery furnace. If it were not for the suffering, they would have never had that experience with Christ. Even our sister Esther Onkin, after she dealt with her terror there, she would go on to say, Peace filled my heart. And I was surprised to find that I felt like singing. My heart was as broad as the ocean and even the clouds seemed friendly to me. I was not going to live my youthful life for myself. I would offer it to the Lord and bear witness of Him. I was filled with happiness, she says, for having been born in this age of bitterness. Is that not extraordinary? She says, I'm happy to be here because God has come and He has met me here. God reserves, brothers and sisters in Christ, a special coming and resting and fellowship in the midst of your hardship. You will never suffer alone. In fact, Peter said, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rest upon you. In your hardship, in your trouble, in your trial, if you trust in Christ, you will find Him there. A merciful high priest, a compassionate friend, a faithful companion, a reigning Lord who has declared, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul doesn't want to suffer, but he wants Christ. He understands Christ is a surpassing worth, and so he wants that intimacy in Jesus. And if fellowshipping with Christ requires suffering, then the apostle says, I'd rather suffer and have Jesus than avoid suffering and avoid in Jesus. Suffering for him, and I believe for all Christians, and rightly understood, is in some way a cause for joy. Not because the suffering is enjoyable, far from it, but because it brings us close to Christ. And I wonder, if you look back upon your life, was it, was, was it not the time... Well, I mean, when was the time, let me put it this way, when the presence of Christ was most real to you? I mean, look back. When was the time in which your faith grew the strongest, Christian? When was the time in which God proved Himself to be that very present help in times of trouble? Is it not in times of hardship, and difficulty, sadness, and even pain? I remember some years ago when I was pastoring Drake's Branch Baptist Church, the, the leadership, we all took a retreat over the weekend and we all got to begin sharing about 
when was the time in our life when we were closest to God or God grew our strength, our faith the most, or, or God was, or we felt like we advanced in our pursuit of Jesus. And we just were going around the room and sharing. And it was just this wonderful time of bonding as each man shared the time in which God was the closest to them. And it was not until we were all done that it all dawned on us that every one of us spoke of perhaps the most painful time in our lives. And it was in the hardship. It was in the difficulty that God came and met us. Is this not why the psalmist, when he cries the loudest, is it not in times of trouble? Is it not in times of sin and anguish? And when does he praise the loudest, by the way? Is it not when God comes and redeems him and saves him and carries him through? God will use it. I appreciate Dr. Paul Brand, the medical missionary who wrote the book, Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. It's a gift, he says, but no one wants it. No one's raising their hand and saying, I will take that gift. No one wants to suffer. But the reality is, if you're in Christ, your suffering is not pointless. God intends it to serve you and to strengthen you. So therefore, be a good steward of your suffering. Do not begrudge your suffering, Christian. God is not out of control. Steward it. Don't waste it. I appreciate John Piper's ministry when he discovered that he was diagnosed with cancer. He wrote an article that has been a powerful work in my life and so many other people's on 10 ways not to waste your cancer. Um, and and I, I just want to, I'm going to share five of them with you. I think we could just broaden that out to any type of suffering. I want to encourage you not to waste your suffering. Some of you may be suffering here and God wants you to be a steward of it. One way you will waste your suffering is if you believe that your suffering is a curse and not a gift. I want you to look in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. Just turn back a page perhaps. Maybe you don't even have to turn. It says here, God's Word, for it has been granted to you. See that phrase, granted to you? It's literally graced to you. But we don't use that well, grace in that way in the English. But it, So we, we, we translate it granted to you. But think about grace to you. It has been graced to you that, you not, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but that but also you should suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ. It is not pointless. It is not punishment. It is God's work in you to refine your faith, and in it you will meet Christ, and He will comfort you there, and He will walk you through that shadow of death. Number two, you will waste your suffering if you think ending your suffering is more important than cherishing Christ. The design of of suffering by God is to reorient your heart. It is to help you understand and help you focus and feel and say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God is trying to do that work in your heart. He's trying to kill idols in your life. Sometimes we have these idols and we say, if I don't have this, I will not have joy and happiness in my life. And once you say that about anything, that becomes an idol. And God does not like idols in our life. And He will take that away from us. He will kill that idol for your good. He's trying to reorient your heart that you might understand He is of surpassing worth. You will, number three, waste your suffering if you spend too much time thinking about your suffering and not enough time thinking about God. When we suffer, especially with health issues, you get diagnosed with something, the first thing you want to do is find out everything about that disease. 
And that's good. And that's appropriate. And we should learn about that. And I think that would be a wise thing to do. And then, and then, of course, everybody wants to talk to us about our disease and, and our issues. And so we share with them. And, and people ask us about it. And, we, and, we, and that's good. We, we solicit prayer. And we should inform people. But the suffering that God brings upon you is not to awaken you to the reality of a disease. It is to awaken you to God. It is to bring you to God. And so yes, think about your suffering and talk about it with other people. Seek prayers and seek counsel. But then change the conversation and tell them what God is doing for you through it. Tell them of the hundreds of ways in which God is ministering you in the midst of your hardship. For every hour you spent researching your disease, spend 10 hours reading God's Word. For every hour you spend talking about your disease, spend 10 hours telling people what God is doing in your life through it. Number four, you will waste your suffering if you have no hope. If you have no hope. I think it's interesting if you notice there in verse 10 that these two things are paired together. The power of His resurrection and the sharing of His sufferings. It's almost like Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Right? Suffering and then resurrection. That is, it, it, I think it's purposeful. I think in, in the suffering you're going to find the power of the resurrection power available to give you hope and strength and suffering. You are not alone. My God will meet all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Number five, you will waste your suffering if you fail to use it as a means to glorify God. In hardship and trial and difficulty, you will have opportunities to bear witness to the infinite value of Christ in your life. Your suffering, your hardship, your pain and difficulty will be a megaphone to your praise. God is giving you opportunities to show the world that He is of greater worth to you than even life itself. Do not waste it. Do not waste that opportunity. Paul says, I want to fellowship in His sufferings. If you're suffering here this morning, it may be the best thing that has ever happened to you. And I'm in no way saying it's easy or pain-free, but I am saying that God works all things together for our good. All things. All things. And, and sometimes it might not just um, bring Christ's presence to you. Sometimes it might just bring you to God Himself in order to be saved. I rejoice in the story that Pastor J.D. Greer, who pastors the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, tells about Jason Williams. Some of you remember Jason Williams. He was uh, the point guard for Duke University. And in my unbiased opinion, he was the best point guard in his generation. Well, Jason Williams had a stellar college basketball career and then selected number two by the Chicago Bulls in the NBA draft and had a very successful rookie season until afterwards, just a, a week or so after that season ended, he decided to get on a motorcycle. And he promptly drove that motorcycle into a street light. He almost died. He broke his leg in nine places. And he would never step another foot on a basketball court again. What made matters worse is that the long contract that he had signed with the Chicago Bulls had a stipulation in it. That you will never get on a motorcycle. And so not only did he lose his MBA career, but he lost his entire contract 
with the Bulls. Months later, he met with coffee in a Durham coffee shop with Pastor J.D. and tears running down his face. He said to him, I threw away my entire career for a few seconds on a motorcycle. In which J.D. responded to him saying, You may learn one day to thank God for that accident because you were throwing away your entire eternity for a few seconds on a basketball court. And God want, if God wants to put you flat on your back so you can learn that basketball won't save you and fame won't save you and money won't save you, that only Jesus will save you, you will thank God for that day. I think he did. He reached across that table in the Durham coffee shop and grabbed J.D.'s hand and prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. You see, God puts suffering in our lives often as a means for which for us to despair of all the other things we've been pursuing, that we might find Christ. Suffering for the Christian is meant to bring fellowship with Jesus. And suffering for those who are not Christians is often meant to bring you to Christ. He will save you. Not, not, not from your pain. Do not misunderstand me. I am not saying if you come to Christ, your pain will go away. Sometimes it gets worse. But He will save you for eternity. He will save you into joy and delight and purpose and a relationship with the one for whom you were created to know. Paul thirdly says, I want to know Christ by following Him in self-denial. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, becoming like Him in His death. And so He wants to become like Jesus, but specifically, He wants to become like Jesus when Jesus died. So the question is, well, then what was Jesus like when He died? And, and I think we probably say He was a lot of things when He died, but, but at least one thing that we could say was that He was selfless. That Jesus had died to His own desires. That He had even prayed in the garden, not my will, but Your will be done. And He has said, I will do whatever You ask of Me. I will follow wherever You send Me. I will be obedient even to the point of death. And Christ not only does this, but He invites us to do the same. For He says to His disciples, if anyone to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. Paul says, I want to know how to die. Not just at the end of my life, but I want to know how to die on Monday morning and die on Tuesday afternoon. I want to know what it's like to take up my cross daily and follow Christ. I came across a story in preparing for this message that hit home for me. And when I think about this picture of self-denial, this man named Bernie May, who's the head of Wycliffe Bible Translator years ago, visited a young family living in a Muslim nation. They had spent three years working with a people group of 100,000 who had no knowledge of Christ. They had three children under the age of five. And the smallest one, the baby, was covered with pox marks, some of which looked infected. Bernie May asked the, the mother, are, are those, are, is that chicken pox? And she answered, no, those are ant bites. He says, we can't keep the ants off him, but eventually he'll become immune to them. And Bernie May went on to write, in a moment of honesty, she confessed she felt guilty because she was suffering from stress. Stress, he said. She and her young husband came here from the middle of the USA. Now they live in a place where the temperature is above 100 degrees most of the year. Their children are covered with ant bites. A war is going on close by. Their helpers are in danger for being their friends. Many in the villages are suffering from hunger and disease. And they can't even let their supporters know what they are doing so that they can pray for them since they are in a closed critical area. And she feels guilty because she's under stress. 
I told her she had every right to feel stressful. I had been here only three days and I was becoming unglued. And yet he goes on to testify that this family was just filled with God's love and joy and laughing and delight, even in the midst of such self-denial. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Uh, I, want to, I want to become like him in his death. I, I want to grow in my willingness to die to myself and to embrace the cross. I want to lay down my rights and live for Jesus. My question for you, Christian, today, is there any place in your life in which you are dying to yourself? Is there anything that you could put your finger on and say, I'm, Pastor, I am denying myself here and here. I think so often we live primarily for ourselves and we think, I want, I want, I want, I want what I deserve and I want my life to be easy. And we take that attitude in the church and I want the church to be what it's supposed to be in order to meet my needs. And I just want everybody to meet my needs. I want, we live. And I'm telling you, you will never be the Christian you're supposed to be if you are living for everything you want. And we will never be the church we are supposed to be If we live for everything we want, we will never make disciples like we should. We will never make any real sacrifice like we should. We will never learn to go to hard places like we should. We will never learn to have hard conversations like we should. If all you and I do together is gather for a handful of hours on Sunday mornings in order to have our needs met and then leave on Sunday afternoon and live the rest of our lives looking for other places to to meet our needs, one day we shall stand before God and He will say, You wasted it. You wasted it. You wasted your opportunity. But if God's scripture takes root in our heart, we become more like Jesus in his death. We become willing more and more to sacrifice, hold loosely of this world. One day we will stand before God and he will say, your life counted for my glory. This church counted for my glory and my kingdom. Lastly, Paul says, I want to know Christ by being raised from the dead. You see that there in verse 11? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul's ultimate goal is not simply to be like Christ or to experience Christ's power, to receive Christ's righteousness, or even to fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. His ultimate goal is to get to go home and to be with Christ. I want to go be with him. I want to be raised from the dead that I may go be with Jesus. And he says this little phrase that's given some people trouble, by any means possible. I don't want you to read that and think, well, is he doubting that he will attain the resurrection from the dead? No, he's not doubting. What he is doubting is how he will. That is, what are the circumstances that will bring about his resurrection from the dead? Will he die of old age? Will he die a martyr's death? He doesn't know. But either way, he will attain the resurrection from the dead. If you're a Christian one day, you shall be raised from the dead bodily and you shall live on a new earth forever because Christ has forgiven you and he's given you his righteousness. And Paul says, I want that. I want the resurrection from the dead because that's his home. That's where Jesus is. Don't you want to go to heaven? I mean, I'm not, not just someday. I and mean, wouldn't it be good to go now that Christ has come and off we go and we get to go home? I mean, some days I really long for heaven, right? Some days you long for it more than others. And it's not always because they're difficult days. Well, that's the case. And, but, but isn't there not some place in your heart, Christian, where you're just homesick? 
You're just, you're just, don't you sometimes think I just, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm done. I want to go home. I want Christ. The prize is Christ. Paul says, I want to know Jesus by the resurrection of the dead. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We're so delighted that you could come and be with us here this morning. And I know this passage may seem totally um, foreign to you. This way of life seems very strange to you. And yet what's not strange is what this passage is teaching us, I believe, is that we live for a desire. We live for something. And even if you're not a Christian, you're living for something. You're seeking fulfillment somewhere. And it may be in relationships. It may be in wealth. It may be in a nice house and a big car and a pool in the backyard. It may be for an early retirement. It may be for love. It may be for a number of reasons. And you're seeking these things. And I think what you'll find is that the more you pursue these things, the the more unsatisfied you're going to be. Because you're not designed to find your fulfillment in those things. You are designed, you have been made by a God to find fulfillment and delight in the God who made you. He is to be the source of your joy. And when you start to put things in the place of where He belongs, you're not going to find that fulfillment. And one day you're going to stand before Him and you're going to realize why you never were fulfilled in this life. Because He's the one you're made for. But unfortunately, you spent your whole life refusing Him, rejecting Him. And that will be to your eternal shame. I want you to understand today that Christ has died upon the cross and for our sin and risen from the third day and invites us into have a relationship with Him. And that relationship is largely of, of master and follower. We could describe it different ways, but it is a, is a relationship of a, a, a submission to our King. And He invites you to submit your life to Him and end your life of rebellion and to begin to follow Him. And if you do, He will place in your heart joy that you have never experienced before. Peace that you have never experienced before today and forevermore if you follow after Christ. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Perhaps you could send me an email this week or we could meet after the service. and I could share more of what it means to begin to follow Christ. And for us Christians here this morning, I know today has been somewhat sober. Um, God, this week's been somewhat sober for me. God has been doing a work in my life in this text. I came across a passage by a, a man that I respect. His name is Brian Chapel. He's a president at uh, a seminary in St. Louis. He said, There came a day in which my faith could be better described as resignation. The joy had drained away. The passion and my love for God had frozen over. And I was in trouble. I imagine there are some people here today, if you were honest, Christian, you would say, yeah, my faith is pretty much resignation. You know, I'm resigned to believe in Jesus. I'm just going to plod on through this life and hope for the best. And one day I'll end up in heaven. But when you look at your heart, there's, there's no passion. There's no drive. There's no zeal. There's no love. It's, it's just cold. I think all of us get in places like that at times. Somehow before we know, we're just in a cold place and we feel like we're not even moving forward. A.W. Tozer said, complacency is a deadly foe for the Christian. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. 
My hope for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are in a cold place, is that you would not leave here with a list of things to do. You would not leave here with a bunch of boxes to check on Monday and Tuesday. But you would leave here with a desire for Christ. And, and if not a desire for Christ, then a desire to desire Christ. A longing to long after Him. That God would change your heart. And that He would move you out of resignation to this white, hot, flaming uh, passion for Him and faith for Him. That you would leave not burdened with things to do, but a God to seek after. I would encourage you not just to have that longing, but to go to Him this week. Spend time with Him, seek Him, speak to Him, read His Word, commune with Him, and ask Him for this work in your life. I would like to invite you to even begin asking Him now. I'm going to give you a little moment, maybe a half a minute, just to talk to God right now. Perhaps He's speaking to one or two of you here that you may call for God to begin a work in your life. Let us pray. Our Lord, you are, as your word says, of surpassing value. And yet your people become so distracted. And we are so confused at times and often wayward. And even we who have your word and know better, we run after things as if they will fulfill us. I pray for our church. We pray for our church. We ask that you would let us be people of one thing. That we would be people for Jesus. That we would be people who long for Jesus to know him and to follow him and to give our lives to him. That we would understand that he does not exist for us, but that we exist for him to be Christ followers, that we might know him. Help us. I believe you are, by your grace, doing a good work in Hamilton Baptist Church. But we are not content. We want more, Father. We want you to work more powerfully in our lives, that we might be conformed more to the image of Christ, that we would sacrifice and and give and go and speak and follow and love and forgive like Christ. Please, Father, your people pray to you and ask us, ask you to make us like Jesus. Do this work for your glory and for our great gain, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.